Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew, or sorry, John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. That's going to be our text, John 5, 31 through 47. And let's begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. I think I initially said verse 30, but we're going to go from 31. So let's read. This is God's Word, beginning in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, or you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Amen. That's the reading of God's word. In the last election, a man named George Santos was elected. He's a Republican member of Congress for the state of New York. After the election, as some of you well know, it was discovered that his new political career was based on a web of very audacious claims about himself that turned out to be brazenly false. He claimed to have attended a prestigious private high school, but hadn't. He claimed to have graduated in the top of his class with two degrees from a respected university where, in fact, he had never intended college at all. He even claimed to have been a star in the volleyball team there, which, of course, wasn't true either. After his fake time in college, he claims to have had a very successful career at multiple elite financial institutions on Wall Street, none of which have any record of his employment. In reality, it appears from what we are learning, that Santos is basically a con who has used various scams to make money over the years, even operating under a fake name at times. And he's continued this kind of behavior since his running for office. Recently, you may have seen on the news, he was indicted on federal charges, including wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, lying to Congress, etc. In short, George Santos currently a representative of the United States Congress for the state of New York, is not who he claimed to be when he was elected. 
Sometimes people aren't who they claim to be. Such people can do great damage to others. And of course, the loftier the claims are that they make about themselves, the greater the damage can be. According to the New Testament, the man Jesus claimed great things about himself. Far greater than George Santos. Indeed, it's difficult to see how any man could claim greater things about himself than Jesus did. And since he has departed from this earth, Jesus has gained a great following. Indeed, no single human being has gained a greater following than Jesus. So when it comes to the issue of whether Jesus really is who he claimed to be, the stakes are about as high as it gets. If Jesus turns out not to be who he claimed to be, the damage done to others through his fraud would be unprecedented. On the flip side, though, if it turns out that he is who he claimed to be, then it has vast implications for every human being. So, how do we evaluate whether Jesus was telling the truth about himself? Well, in this text that we've come to this morning, in John's Gospel, Jesus claimed to provide Evidence to confirm that he was indeed telling the truth about his identity. So let's take a closer look at John 5, 31 through 47. But before we dive into this text, let me take a moment to put this passage in its context for you. So to begin with, I want to remind you of certain features of the book as a whole. First, remember in John's account of the gospel... Uh, it contains a number of miracles, seven miracles that Jesus performed, which John calls signs because they point to certain things about who Jesus is and what he had come to do. And then second, remember that John's account of the gospel also contains a number of discourses or discussions between Jesus and various people, which also serve to explain certain things about Jesus' identity and his mission to the reader. Third, remember that this particular section of the book that we've just entered into, beginning in chapter 5, running all the way through chapter 10, it has often been called the festival cycle because it tells us what happened when Jesus went up to Jerusalem for four different festivals. And this section of the book, often called the festival cycle, it's marked by increasing conflict between Jesus and the Jews. So, in other words, every time that Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of these festivals, he ended up clashing with the Jews and their leaders. And each time the conflict became more intense. But, as I pointed out in my last sermon, As the conflict became more intense in this section, so did the revelation of Jesus' person and work. I quoted Scotty Smith last time. Let me quote him again. He said, The further we move into John's gospel, the wider he draws open the curtain on Jesus' identity and mission. 
His miracles grow bigger and his words grow bolder, all revealing Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, even God the Son. So with that groundwork laid, now let's think about chapter 5. It's at the beginning of this festival cycle. So as Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast, in this case, the feast is not named, we expect, right, to see conflict between Jesus and the Jews. Now, the conflict began in this instance with a miracle that Jesus performed. He healed a man who had been lame for 38 years at a pool called Bethesda in the city of Jerusalem. It was the third of the seven miraculous signs recorded in John's gospel. And what made this miracle controversial, you remember, was that Jesus intentionally healed this man on the Sabbath day and then told him to pick up his mat and walk, which, as Jesus knew well, was a violation of the Sabbath rules that were held by the Jews and their leaders. Now, as Jesus anticipated what happened, the Jews, when they saw the man carrying his mat and heard that Jesus had told him to do so, they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus had a very provocative response prepared. You remember, instead of pointing out that it wasn't really a violation of the fourth commandment for someone to pick up their mat and walk with it, Jesus opted to go a different route. He justified his instructions to the man by saying this in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, in the context, Jesus was in essence saying this. God continues his work on the Sabbath day, and so can I. Because I am God's son. Now the Jews understood the shocking implications of that statement. As it says in verse 18, they understood that, quote, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so as it says in verse 18, they were trying to kill Jesus because in their minds, he was not only breaking the Sabbath, But he was a blasphemer as well, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And blasphemy and Sabbath breaking were both capital crimes under the Old Covenant. Now, this third miraculous sign was then followed, and we looked at this last week, by a discourse in verses 19 through 29, a discussion between Jesus and the Jews where he explained that he really was the unique Son of God, who was equal with God the Father. And he explained this by telling them these divine activities that he did with God the Father. So you remember how he said in verse 19, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And then he went on to claim that as the Son of God, he, for instance, would give eternal life to whomever he will, that he would raise humanity at the end of the age and judge all mankind, sending them to eternal life or to eternal destruction. He even said in verse 23, 
that all people are to honor him even as they honor the Father. Now, by the time you get to the end of this section, in verse 29, it's clear Jesus really was claiming to be the Son of God in such a way that he was making himself equal with God. In other words, Jesus was claiming to be God the Son. It was the highest sort of claim, wasn't it? Which, if it was untrue, would indeed be blasphemous. And it would merit the penalty of death under the old covenant. But anyone who would accuse him of blasphemy would have to reckon with the fact that he had just performed an incredible miracle, which could only have been done by God's power. So, though Jesus' claim was lofty in the extreme, it could not be easily dismissed. Because it's difficult to see how he could have performed such a miracle if he truly was a fraud. As the Pharisee Nicodemus, you remember, had acknowledged to Jesus way back in chapter 3, verse 2, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And that brings us to our text. Now, this next section of chapter 5, verses 31 through 47, runs this way. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus says this. If you look at your text there, and let's read it again. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears about me is true. Now, under the old covenant, the requirement for finding someone guilty of a serious offense was the testimony of two to three witnesses. You remember this? So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And this same standard, by the way, is carried on into the new covenant for matters, for instance, of church discipline. So you remember from Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, Jesus said, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that biblical criteria for establishing the truth of a charge is his words in this text, except he's using it in a slightly different way. He had been making some serious claims about himself, right? Claims which would indeed be blasphemous if proved untrue. Indeed, in verse 31, he acknowledges that if he were making these claims about himself without any corroborating testimony, they would be untrue. But he went on to assert in verse 32, you see, that there was another witness who would testify that his claims about himself were indeed true. Indeed, we're going to see in the ensuing verses that he's going to point to many witnesses to corroborate his claims. In fact, I should just stop and mention at this point something else about the Gospel of John. There is, in this passage, just the beginning of an extended trial motif, a trial theme in the Gospel of John. So as conflict intensifies between Jesus and the Jews, John 
is going to repeatedly present Jesus as identifying various witnesses, witnesses who will testify that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And in this way, he demonstrates the truth about his identity through many witnesses. And he also proves the guilt of those who are rejecting him. Interestingly, there are seven signs, seven I am statements, and many have pointed out that there seems to be seven witnesses identified in the Gospel of John. Five of them are in this passage. Jesus is the first, but he identifies four others which corroborate his own testimony about himself. So the second witness Jesus identifies besides himself is there in verses 33 through 35. So look again at the text. There he said, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, Jesus was referring here, of course, to John the Baptist. John is identified as a witness to Jesus from the very beginning of the book. In fact, you remember back in the prologue, in verse 7 of chapter 1, it is said of John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that's Jesus, that all might believe through him. So Jesus pointed out here in verse 33 that the Jews had sent messengers to John to find out who he claimed to be. And we actually saw that back in chapter 1, verses 19 and following. And there we read that John had told them, you remember, I am not the Christ, but I'm his forerunner, sent ahead of him to prepare the way for his arrival. And then in multiple passages sprinkled throughout chapters 1 through 3, we're told that John identified Jesus as the Christ, and said various things about him. So he identified him as the Lord who has come, as the Son of God, as the bridegroom of God's people. He said that as the Christ, Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world and the one who would baptize people in the Holy Spirit. So great was Jesus, according to John the Baptist, that John said, I'm not worthy to even loosen the strap of his sandal, which was considered to be the most menial of tasks, fit only for a slave. But Jesus said in verse 34 of our text, not that the testimony I receive from John is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, he's saying, look, I brought up the testimony of John the Baptist here, not because I necessarily need any testimony from a human being, but for your sake. If perhaps you might listen to John, after all, you sent to him, and that you might be saved through his witness. But Jesus didn't need human witnesses to validate his claims about himself as the unique son of God who was equal with God the Father, the one who would raise the dead and judge mankind. He didn't need human beings to validate his identity. By the way, it's an important point. God is not subject to the judgment of men and their man-made standards. 
You know, it is very common, isn't it, for people to judge God by standards which either they personally or their society have made up and to find God guilty. This is even how many professing Christians end up falling away. But they never stop to think of the perversity of that. What right have we as creatures to judge our Creator by our own standards? And when you consider that we as creatures are not only finite, but fallen, it becomes even more outrageous to think of us subjecting God, who is infinite, who is perfect, to our judgment. As the psalmist put it, he who sits in the heaven laughs at the foolish pride of human beings. Indeed, human beings should be terrified to think that they have dared to put God on the stand and to pass judgment on him by their own fallen reasoning, according to their ever-changing, often contradictory, very corrupt standards. As the only eternal creator of the universe, God is the judge of mankind. And his own perfect nature is the standard by which he judges. You know, he doesn't need to be justified by us. We need to be justified in his sight. So when we read the Bible and we find ourselves questioning his words and his actions, we should stop and just realize that the problem lies with us, not with him. He is almighty. He is all-knowing. He is perfect in wisdom and goodness. We are sinful and limited and finite. Why would we think that we know better than God what is right, what is best? You see, in reality, that kind of hubris is the height of folly. As the wisdom books tell us, right? It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Well, in addition to himself and John the Baptist, whose validation he didn't need, but might be helpful to his hearers, Jesus identified a third witness to his identity, and it's there in verse 36. So look again. There he said, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, the works of Jesus almost are certainly referring to the miracles he's doing, the supernatural activity that he was carrying out. And he says this was a greater witness than John the Baptist, because after all, it's not rooted in another human being, but it's rooted in himself. Now, the reason that Jesus' miracles, that he's uh, testified, are witness to the fact that he's telling the truth when he claimed to be this divine son of God, it's fairly obvious, right? I mean, they were unmistakable displays of divine power and authority. No one denied that Jesus was doing real acts of supernatural power. Even his enemies didn't deny that. If he wasn't the unique son of God, who was equal with God the Father, well then, he couldn't, have performed 
such unmistakable miracles. No fraud, in other words, could do the things that Jesus was doing. So powerful was this particular witness that Jesus appealed to it quite often. So, for instance, in John 10, 24 and 25, he would later say, it says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. A little later in that chapter, verses 36 to 38, Jesus said to the Jews, Do you say of me, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. But later, chapter 15, verse 24, he said to the Jews, if, they had not done, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. You see, anyone who denied that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, as he claimed, had to figure out a way to dismiss the genuineness and the validity of his miracles because they were such a powerful witness to the fact that he's telling the truth about himself. And this is why all four Gospels tell us that the Jews did end up doing that. Do you remember how they did it? They said that Jesus had been performing his miracles by the power of Satan. So since Jesus' miracles were undeniable acts of supernatural power, which they had seen with their own eyes, they had no choice but to attribute it to the only other source of supernatural power that they knew of, which was the evil. By the way, this is powerful evidence, isn't it? Of the fact that unbelief is really a moral issue at its heart. It's not just that people don't believe in God or don't believe the gospel because they don't have enough evidence. It's that, as Paul put it in Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So when people refuse to believe in God, despite the evidence, for instance, of his handiwork all around them in creation, it's because they don't want to believe in him. When people hear the gospel and they reject it, it's because they don't want to believe that it's true because of the implications it would have upon their lives. This is why, while evidence and reason can be important tools that the Lord uses to bring people to faith in Christ, yet at the end of the day, they're not enough in themselves to convert someone. First, the Holy Spirit has to tear down the citadel of pride and self-righteousness within their hearts and give them eyes to see and ears to hear before they will believe and trust in Christ. So, as you think about unbelieving friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors and people you want to see saved, you must not only proclaim the gospel to them, faith comes by hearing, but you also have to pray that God, well, like he did with Lydia in Acts 16, open their hearts to respond to the message when they hear it. Well, in addition to himself, John the Baptist and his works, 
Jesus identified a fourth witness. And you see that in verse 37. There he said, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So the Father himself is the ultimate witness to the fact that Jesus is his only begotten Son, equal with him as God. And it is his testimony to Jesus that matters the most. But while Jesus says here that the Father had himself borne witness about me, he didn't explain in these verses how. Perhaps D.A. Carson is right when he says that that was because Jesus was speaking generally about all the different kinds of ways that the Father had borne witness about him. And, and indeed, there is a sense in which the Father stood behind every other witness to Jesus. So, for instance, it was the Father who had sent John the Baptist to prepare the way before he sent the Son into the world. And it was the Father who gave these miraculous works to the Son to perform. You remember, if you're memorizing John chapter 14 through 17, John 14, 10, the Father who dwells in me does his works. But it's also true that the Father did bear his own identity as his divine Son. For instance, you remember that there are at least two times recorded in the Gospels where the Father is said to have spoken audibly out of heaven about the identity of his son, Jesus. You remember? The first was at his baptism, Matthew 3.17. It says, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the other was when he was on the mountain and he was transfigured before three of his disciples. And it says in Matthew 17.5, a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, of course, the ultimate way that the Father would bear witness distinctly to the identity of Jesus as his son would be by raising him from the dead on the third day after his death and then seating him at his right hand as the messianic king on high. But that hadn't happened yet when Jesus said these words. Notice that in the rest of verses 37 and 38, Jesus told the Jews that they had not been able to perceive the witness of the Father to his identity because despite what they assumed, they were not truly acquainted with the Father. You see how Jesus put it? His voice you have never heard. Imagine telling that to the Jews. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. You can imagine the I beg your pardons. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You know, we see from this again, the impossibility of truly knowing God and having a relationship with him apart from his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has come from God the Father. God the Father has borne witness about him in various ways that he is the eternal divine son. So, no one now can honor the Father without properly honoring his Son as well. The two go together. As Jesus himself put it in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Or later on in verse 38, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. 
If you think this morning that you know the God of the Bible, but you do not believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is equal with God the Father, you are mistaken. Besides himself, John the Baptist, his own works, and the Father, Jesus identified one last witness, a fifth witness to his identity, which he talks about for the rest of the chapter. And you see that witness clearly identified in verse 39. So look again at what it says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Here's the fifth witness. You know, this was an extremely provocative thing to say to the Jews in Jerusalem because they knew the scriptures. That is, the inspired writings of the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. The Jewish leaders especially knew the Old Testament. They knew it inside and out. They had the scribes had copied it meticulously, every jot and tittle. They read it. They studied it daily. They'd memorized large portions of it. And they were no doubt certain that they had properly understood it. And yet here Jesus is telling them that these very scriptures, which they knew so well, actually bore witness about him, the very one whom they were seeking to kill as a blasphemer. Now this truth, that the Old Testament scriptures bore witness to Jesus, it's a common theme in the New Testament. It's clearly the way that both Jesus and his apostles viewed the Old Testament. For instance, even back in John's gospel, back in chapter 1, verse 45, you remember it says that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Or think of how Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. They would find their fulfillment in him. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says of Jesus to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and beginning with Moses and of all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then just a few verses later, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Acts chapter 3, verse 24. Peter preached, quote, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, the days of messianic fulfillment. Paul, too, you remember in Acts 26, 22 through 23, he had been preaching to King Agrippa and he said this, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 
later on at the end of the book of Acts, in Acts 28, 23, when Paul was sitting in a little prison house in Rome, says that the Jews, quote, came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And it says, quote, from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. You see, understanding the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures properly, is to recognize that as Jesus said here, they bear witness about him. But you might be asking, well, how exactly do the Old Testament scriptures speak of Jesus? Well, in many ways. For one thing, Jesus is the Messiah whose arrival was predicted in the Old Testament and would signal the fulfillment of all the prophecies of redemption in the Old Testament in the last days. So the New Testament is constantly telling us about all the various prophecies that were being fulfilled through Jesus, through his ministry. We've been looking at that in our study of the prophets. Also, the promises made by God in the Old Testament. You, know, you think of the promise made to Adam in Genesis 3.15. Not our Adam, the other Adam. Or to Abraham in Genesis 22.17. Or to David in 2 Samuel 7. And all and all, all, on and on, all these promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus as the Messiah. So Paul, you remember, famously said, 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And then the New Testament explains in many places how different Old Testament promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And precisely because of all that, the Old Testament can be viewed as telling part one of a historical story that is continued in the New Testament. So that to read the Old Testament without the New Testament is something akin to reading the Fellowship of the Rings and the Two Towers and stopping there and never reading the Return of the King. You miss the whole point of the story. Along these same lines, all the main themes which run throughout the storyline of the Old Testament terminate in the person and work of Jesus. He inaugurates the new creation. That was fallen and corrupted in the beginning. He is the second Adam who represents a new humanity and secures their righteousness through his own obedience. He redeems them through a second exodus, which was like the first one, what better? And he reigns over them as the new Davidic king, of which all the other Davidic kings simply pointed forward to. Well, finally, and closely related to that last one, Jesus is the one who was foreshadowed by all the types in the Old Testament. So, for instance, do you remember how the writer of Hebrews makes very clear in Hebrews 7 through 9 that the Levitical priests, all their animal sacrifices, which they offered up in the temple or the tabernacle where they ministered, that they all prefigured and they all pointed forward to the ministry of Jesus, who is our great high priest, 
who offered up himself as a once-for-all sacrifice and has entered into the true tabernacle, the presence of God in heaven, to intercede for us there forever. Or think of Paul, Colossians 2.17, where it says, he says that all the festivals and the holy days of the Old Covenant were, quote, a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, in all these ways, and perhaps others as well, the Old Testament scriptures, they bear witness to Jesus, testifying to his identity and to his mission for all who have eyes to see it. Indeed, it's interesting to see that Jesus pressed the issue even further in verses 45 through 47. Do you see that? Where he says to the Jews, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses was a most revered figure by the Jews, right? Because he oversaw the birth of the nation of Israel as God's old covenant people. He was the first and greatest of all the old covenant prophets through whom God had delivered the first five books of the Bible which contained the old covenant law. And the Jewish leaders, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, they revered that law. They considered themselves experts in that law. But Jesus now told them that at the final judgment, the very writings of Moses, which they so revered, would bear witness against them. Because these very writings of Moses spoke of Jesus whom they were rejecting. It's interesting how this very gospel of John shows us how Moses wrote of Jesus in the first five books of the Bible. You think back, John chapter 1, verse 51. Jesus compared himself to the ladder connecting heaven and earth which Jacob saw in his dream in Genesis 28. Or a few chapters, a couple chapters later, John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus compared himself to the bronze serpent which Moses lifted up for the Israelites in the desert, that whoever would look at the serpent might be saved from perishing under God's judgment. That's Numbers 21.9. Or you think in after, in the next chapter we're going to look at, John chapter 6, where Jesus compared himself to the manna which God had given to Israel in the book of Exodus. And he says, guess what? I am the true bread of God, which he gives out of heaven to give life to the world. And we could just multiply other examples from John, from the rest of the New Testament, where the stories, the promises, the oracles, the types contained in the writing of Moses are said to anticipate Jesus. Thus, Jesus identified the Old Testament scriptures themselves as a fifth witness to his identity from beginning to end. They testified about him. So if you don't understand this, you cannot understand their true meaning. And this, in fact, was true of the Jews to whom they were speaking. He told them, verses 39 to 40, you search the scriptures 
because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is what Paul was describing in Romans 9 and 10. There, do you remember, he lamented that his fellow Jews had a zeal for God, he says, but not according to knowledge. Because they sought to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law. And as Jesus put it, they thought that the old covenant scriptures, in other words, could give them life. But they failed to recognize that the old covenant scriptures have always been bearing witness forward in history to Jesus, the only one who could give them that life-giving righteousness. You remember how Paul would put it in Galatians 3.24? He would say, The law was like a guardian, a tutor, until Christ came, in order that you might be justified through faith in him. But now, Christ had come. And tragically, they had rejected him. They showed that they had missed the whole point of the Old Testament scriptures. They'd forfeited the true source of life to which they'd always testified. You remember that sad picture that Paul painted of the unbelieving Jews in 2 Corinthians 3, 15-16. He said, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And indeed, so it is with everyone. Everyone who reads the Bible without faith in Christ, to whom it bears witness from beginning to end, Let it not be said of anyone in this room. Rather, let's put on the spectacles of faith in Jesus Christ when we read our Bibles so that we might understand all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that it contains, the life that we have in Christ. Especially you, unbeliever, if you're here this morning, hear the message of the good news about Jesus Christ which is the center of the whole Bible. Though you are God's special creature, made in his own image to glorify him, to enjoy him forever, you've turned aside to serve yourself through the pursuit of created things instead of God. And as a result, you have come under God's just condemnation and the punishment for sin is death. But God, out of his great compassion, great mercy towards sinners, sinners like you, sinners like me, has decided to save a remnant who would believe. So he sent his eternal divine son, who we were talking about, into the world as a man, Jesus Christ. And he became a man so that he might redeem men and women who will repent and believe in him. Jesus fulfilled God's commands. We haven't. He did it on our behalf. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins in full when he died on the cross. He secured our eternal life when he rose from the dead to life. Spiritual life now. Resurrection life when he returns. So the good news proclaimed in the New Testament and the Old Testament anticipated is this. Any sinner who will simply believe in Jesus and trust in him to save them from their sins, will be forgiven and receive eternal life as a gracious gift. 
Jesus so famously said back in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so I would call you, if you're lost in your sin today, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But the Jews to which Jesus was speaking our text, they did not believe in Jesus for salvation. Despite the witness of John the Baptist, of Jesus himself, of his miracles, of the Father, and of the Scriptures. All these witnesses testified to Jesus. He was the Christ, the Son of God. And yet, as Jesus put it in verse 40, they refused to come to him that they might have life. Why? Jesus explained it there in verses 41 through 44. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You know, here Jesus, he diagnoses the reason why the Jews didn't believe in him. Even though he'd come from God. And in essence, if if you were to boil it down, it was because they weren't driven by the same motivations as him. Jesus wasn't seeking human praise. They were. So when Jesus came along, not seeking their acceptance or praise, unafraid to confront their errors and hypocrisy, boldly telling them what was true and right, it did not sit well with them. This was not how they operated. Indeed, as Jesus pointed out, if another religious leader came along, perhaps someone claiming to be the Messiah, who affirmed them in their religious ideas and behavior, well, they would be willing to follow that person even though they didn't come from God. Such a person played by their rules, didn't expose them. In other words, it was their love of human acceptance of Jesus. And by the way, the same is true today. If you are more concerned about being accepted and praised by the world than you are about knowing what is true And doing what is right before God. You will not receive Jesus' words. You will not trust in him as Savior and Lord. Oh, you may still be religious. But you will look for a religion that will affirm what you already believe and want to do. You may even profess faith in Jesus. But it will be a Jesus of your own making. One who affirms you. And makes you comfortable rather than the Jesus you actually find in the New Testament. Unbeliever, if you are truly going to come to Jesus this morning, you have to be willing to let him tell you the truth and call you to do what is right before God, whether it makes you comfortable or not. And believer, if you are going to maintain your faith by the power of the Spirit, of course, without falling away in these difficult days, You have to love the praise that comes from God rather than the praise that comes from men. Indeed, we have to be willing to bear the scorn of men in order to follow Jesus in truth and righteousness. If you fear losing the world's acceptance more than you fear, to quote Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, suffering the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, then you're going to abandon your faith in order to be accepted by your friends, your co-workers, your professors, a potential boyfriend or girlfriend, etc., etc. In John 5, 
Jesus claims incredible things about himself. He claims to be the unique son of God, equal with God the Father. It's difficult to see how any person could claim greater things about themselves than Jesus did. And when he left the earth, you remember, he has gained a great following for himself, greater than any man in history, if he isn't who he claimed to be. The damage done through his fraud would be unprecedented. But Jesus didn't simply bear witness to himself. He identified other witnesses who also testified to his identity. John the Baptist, his own miracles, God the Father, the Scripture, all testified that he was who he claimed to be. The question is, will you believe the claims of Jesus about himself which have been established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus, of course, doesn't need our acceptance. He doesn't receive glory from people. But he calls you to come to him, if you haven't already, so that you might receive the life that only he can give. You remember how John is going to put it later on in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time together to meditate upon your word, to study it together, to unpack its riches and treasures. And Lord, as we open our Bibles and we look this morning, we see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And he is your unique Son, indeed God the Son. Come down into our world as a man to save us, to do what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts of faith. Lord, strengthen our faith as believers. Open the eyes of any lost in this room that we might believe and trust in him and receive life in his name. Help us to hold fast to him, to not care about the glory which comes from men, but only that which comes from you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.